kind of closing out our course, which is a terrifying thought, um, with some practical focuses on chastity. So chastity education is, I think, the chapter or section title in Grabowski's book. Um, I've called it chastity formation. Um, that there's not much point for us as future pastors to be having all this thinking about sexual morality unless we've got a practical focus in it. If we're going to kind of work that pastorally at a stage in people's lives before things have gone wrong, um, then the youth has to be our primary focus. So the notes I've asked you to read in advance, I know you were on Thanksgiving break, but have you had a chance to read these? Um, okay. Um, so I will, because there's what, 11 pages there, that's too much for me to go through in detail. The same bundle, or have you, have you annotated it? Then there's a spare, okay. Okay, so top of page one, I just made the introductory question, what is the problem that chastity formation or sex education, as it would get, get called in a secular context, um, kind of pretty much everybody agrees there is a problem, but what people think the problem is and what they think the solution is, is very different. So the secular sex education model just throws more and more of kind of the same stuff, which is just accelerating the process of children having sex, the first encounter at a younger and younger age. Uh, so somehow that model isn't working. And if their only focus is let's avoid teenage pregnancy, let's avoid sexually transmittable diseases, it's not working even at a practical level. So what we have as Catholics is a different solution, but in part because we're identifying a different problem. That we don't just think it's the fact that there's an awkward pregnancy that is the problem, or that there's a disease that caught from sexual promiscuity that's a problem. There's actually a whole relationship uh, and misuse of sex that's our primary concern. Now, if you can turn to page three on that bundle I've given you, just for me to show you a couple of books that you may or may not already be familiar with. Um, so top of the page I have books advising young adults or teens. Um, and these two books, um, so I was past the two different parishes in, se in sequence. Um, in both parishes, I gave a copy of these to every teenager in the parish. So Jason Everett's book, uh, If You Really Love Me, I gave a copy to every boy in the parish. Mary Beth Bonacci's book, Real Love, to every teenage girl in the parish. Um, they say largely the same thing, but the woman is writing from a slightly feminine perspective that I think I've found teenage girls respond a little better to that one. Guys better to Jason Everett. You've all heard of Jason Everett. Um, well, Mary Beth Bonacci doesn't have the, dare I say, cult following. Um, 
popular apostolate that Jason ever, you know, he's a real campaigner, a great work for good in the church. Um, and you familiar with the book itself? So both the, these books are question and answer format. So if you work on the assumption that a teenager won't have the mental concentration for a long detailed analysis, lots of kind of bullet point questions, and then a one, two page commentary. Um, should I move in with my boyfriend before we get married? Question mark. And then commentary. Um, so those are the books I'd recommend that you have on your list to give out um, as a future pastor. And if you think what that costs, that's a very significant financial investment you're making in the youth of your parish and in their sexual behavior. Uh, you know, if you just think of that in terms of money. But if you somehow think, well, it's not worth it. If you're not actually addressing this question with the youth in your parish, then they're going to be gone. So either the youth in your parish are worth investing in or they're not. Um, there's just something concrete about giving a book and say, we know you've got questions. Here is something practical that the church has to offer, as well as in your parish youth group having this among the things that not just once, but on repeated occasions and different angles, you're willing to address and talk about. And if at all possible to get a good young adult to come in and say the same things. Um, so there is a value in the pastor or the young priest saying something, um, to have a, a young adult saying the same message either alongside you or on a different night is very important as well. Uh, I then refer to this book here, Every Young Man's Battle. There's a parallel book called Every Young Woman's Battle. This is by uh, an evangelical or two evangelicals. Um, and there is a chapter in here, chapter 13, that I have photocopied and given to every um, teenage boy in different parishes I've worked in. Um, but I know I haven't given this book out because being evangelical, it's heterodox on a very pivotal question that it's addressing, namely whether masturbation is a sin. I touched on this, I think, last lecture, that they say they can't find the word masturbation in the Bible Therefore, the Bible doesn't say anything definitive on it, which is a ridiculous case of sola scriptura. Um, so you could really mislead someone by giving them that book, um, whereas the practical strategies on how to overcome that are really well laid out uh, in there. Uh, and then there's some other resources there. Um, Jason Everett also has a book that has a few photos in it, which, you know, books, smaller books with photographs are sometimes better, called Theology of Her Body and Theology of His Body, depending which way around you're looking at it. Uh, half of it's designed for a girl to be reading about guys and half of it designed for a guy to be reading about girls. Um, that's another um, good practical book you could hand out. 
Any comments on what you've seen work well in this regard in the parish or other settings? Work well. Hmm? Work well, yeah. Well, yeah, that is for many um, a sad, sad reality, yeah. So it's just not even mentioned. Um, And so we're not going to get anything in confession. We're not going to help a young man work through this if he doesn't even know there's something to work through. Um, and so you might have, or typically have, a teenage boy who just has an awareness that there's something kind of dirty about what he's doing, but he doesn't have any intellectual apparatus to even know specifically what's kind of not right because we've let them down uh, as a church so but anyway any positive narratives when I was in high school the youth group every like one youth group a month the guys would go do their thing and the girls would go do their thing and then that was where they brought up this whole topic okay not once a month I mean they would talk about other stuff too but then it wasn't, I don't know, I think having guys and girls separate for that, in high school anyway, make it easier for them. Yeah, definitely, uh, definitely. And then also having it not be like, oh, this is a random one-time thing, mm. but having the guys and girls separate on a somewhat regular yeah. thing was helpful. Because to say a little frequently is better than... Yeah, I said that once five years ago, so I've checked that box as a pastor and I don't need to say it anything again. Um, yeah, well, you're very fortunate. And that was St. Patrick's? Mm -hmm. Okay. We, we did that in youth group this last year, our pastoral year. Okay. And um, it was a very, like, the guys were very uncomfortable when we were talking about everything. And then we split off into small groups and they were like, yeah, we've never talked about this before. Even in school, nobody brings it up. Parents never bring it up. So they were thankful that we brought it up, actually. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so I, it's definitely beneficial. And I would think that the books would, would help to give them a resource. Because um, not every, especially guys, they're not going to come up and say, hey, I have a question about pornography. Right. It's just not going to happen. So given some anonymity, probably good. Yeah. And sometimes I think even to a question they haven't quite vocalized to themselves, they might see written and think, ah, oh, yeah. Um, though conversely, I'm amazed how many teenage guys will talk about this with no sense of embarrassment at all. Um, the last seminar I was at, my route to the seminary, so I was in a parish, would go up to the seminary once a week to teach, um, and I would get on a bus as the final connection of the transport link uh, at the same time as a bunch of school kids would be there. So I would, over the years, because I was doing that 13 years, overhear many conversations, but they would frequently, and on a public bus, discuss where the best porn websites were. Um, and how to fix the filters so your mom couldn't see what you'd been looking at and whatever. Um, so sometimes embarrassment, but sometimes 
amazingly not. Um, Yeah. Um, that focuses on purity. Um, I'll give you. I'll try to find some more information. But the guy who started it um, has a really good analogy about purity and sex, and um, it's just it's a really good story. Um, so I'll try to find that. In, in okay. Um, but it, it seems to be it's it's a growing thing um, that they're they're very popular. In. Generally speaking, our concern as Catholic pastors with evangelical materials should stem out of a theological awareness that because they have issues with sanctification and justification, they don't have a framework to talk about virtue. They don't have a framework to talk about battling against vice because all of that risks sounding like, you know, works salvation. Um, and so you will get things like the, you know, the long-established group Promise Keepers, but some kind of lines in the sand established, but not methodology for how to grow. And obviously not having confession as this perpetually available restoration um, is a big difference in the package to, to recovery as well. So the book I recommended there, I think is unusual in, in my experience in being very, dare I say, works focused on how to grow out of this with grace. Um, okay, back to page one of my notes here. Um, so the middle section there called the damage of sexual promiscuity, uh, there were also two brief articles I asked you to read um, that I footnote there. Are you familiar with any of this? Uh, so th the science that has been done in recent decades showing how sexual promiscuity damages at a hormonal bodily level a person's capacity to form future relationships. So in the act of sexual intercourse, um, there's this hormone oxytocin released in a woman that bonds her to the man she's having sex with. Um, and when that bonding happens, biologically, but in the context sociologically of just breaking that again and again and again, it causes a dysfunction in someone's capacity to form future relationships. So a teenage girl who is repeatedly promiscuous, then at some stage tries to settle down with a guy, the divorce rates with that package are very high. Um, so one of the things with youth groups that I've, one of the points I've, I've made is, you know, you want to have a future happy marriage, don't just ask the question, what's gonna be happy and pleasurable right now? You know you want a long, happy life. Sexual restraint now is one of the ways to make that possible. 
Um, one of the other articles I note there talks about imprinting. So the first sexual encounter somehow imprints on the brain. And if that is a casual or violent or loveless, um, the imprinting that goes with that carries through in life. So the importance of trying to make that right the first time is a big deal. So at the risk of stating the obvious, therefore to have your first sexual encounter with your spouse is going to bring all that together biologically, hormonally, psychologically, in a way that's going to aid your, your marriage. And then pastorally as well, we need to be aware if we're living in a society where promiscuity is so common, that is going to just ripple out into all kinds of marriage issues with the couples we see. Even as they're trying to be faithful, they're just going to have, have had a whole upbringing that isn't preparing them for that faithfulness, um, even in their bodies. Is this the first time you're hearing this about the science for some of you, all of you? You, you have heard it before? Yeah. But not in your parish, I would see. Okay. Um, all of which implies we as pastors have a huge duty to get this right, that it's not just we're wanting to impose some random set of laws on sexual behavior on the young people. This is for their good, their salvation, their future happiness. Okay, page two then. Um, so I try to identify what is the basic goal in chastity formation. Um, and I know three little categories there. First, de-objectivying sex and persons. Um, so I say pornography and the currently common teenage sexual practices treat others as sexual objects. Uh, and so the various sexual acts that will predominate on pornography objectify rather than celebrate a relationship. And so the basic solution we're seeking to be promoting is, as I say, relating to a person, not just relating to a body. Loving a person, not just lusting after a body. Um, next little section there, I come back to the question of virtue versus continence. Um, so we covered that in a few of our lectures earlier this semester. But the basic point then was that content, virtue is not just about self-control. It's not just about willpower. That there's an integration in the passions, integration in the emotions, in the vir vision of virtue that is in the catechism. Um, and that's what we're seeking to form in the young people, um, and the old people too. And that happens through the pattern of habituation through repetition of the right action.
So again, with youth groups, if you talk to them, you know, young people generally are wanting to be the best of whatever. If you, there's a way of talking about virtue, striving for excellence, um, that is just an attractive package. Um, and that chastity is a part of that package, to be the best that they can be. Uh, I gave you a handout single sheet this morning that was waiting on your desk, um, titled Virginity Restored, just thinking the basic goals in chastity formation. Um, and the, I start quoting Sir Grabowski, who's summarizing St. Thomas, saying, St. Thomas does not see virginity in purely physical terms, arguing that virginity can lack its matter i.e. physical integrity, but still possess through repentance or through repentance recover its form, i.e. the offering of one's body to God. So I mentioned this briefly in a sermon a week or so ago. Um, so you know, a house of 60 guys, we don't all have to be physically virgins to be spiritually such. Um, through repentance, to recover the form of virginity. So to, to just read the bits I've put in bold and italics. Um, so the question of what is virginity, he says, the formal and completative element in virginity is the purpose of abstaining from venereal pleasure to have leisure for divine things which is a very beautiful image. Why are we consecrated in this state of virginity to have leisure for these divine things? Um, and then the bottom reply to objection three, virtue can be recovered by penance as regards that which is formal in virtue, but not as to that which is material therein. Person who has lost virginity by sin recovers by repenting. Not the matter of virginity, but the purpose of virginity. Uh, the risk of stating the obvious, what's the vision of virginity here that is different from what we would be talking about with our youth in a parish? Yeah, I suppose what I was thinking is, particularly here, he's focused on relationship with God, leisure for divine things. And actually that isn't, for most people, what virginity would be about. It would actually be about a preparation for a future spouse. Um, so that a young person could kind of, in a temporary sense, consecrate their virginity to God until marriage. Um, but I think it'd be more obvious to say, well, 
in the broader sense, this would be applied a spiritual virginity, meaning a putting aside of my body for my future spouse. My body will one day in marriage belong to my spouse. I will give myself, including giving my body. Therefore, virginity has that purpose. And my experience, many pastors experience, to be able to articulate that to a young girl, in particular in confession, who's kind of feels she's lost it all in something that she hadn't really planned, to say, look, the saints of the church talk about this. You can restore spiritually your virginity by repentance. So yes, you can't restore the body, but the important thing, the form of it, you can restore. It's a very specific point, but one I want to kind of be clear to articulate. Okay, skipping along then. Um, page six, no, page five. The one at the top that's called courting or dating. Uh, so, um, both Jason Everett's book and Bonacci's book talk a lot about, are you on the right page? So at the title, Courting or Dating, uh, both these books talk a lot about how to behave with your boyfriend or girlfriend and why. So classically, the term used was courting. Um, and it's an old fashioned term, but the word dating, if we use it, just has a whole bunch of packaging and connotations and expectations that just aren't helpful. So the word courting implies you are looking for a spouse. The word dating is just about something here and now to have a good time. So back in the terrible days of the 80s and 90s in seminary formation, uh, there were seminaries that were encouraging guys to date girls while in formation, just to be getting experience. Um, which is just treating a girl as a temporary thing to be thrown away, a thing that you're not intending to have an ongoing, there's no future in that relationship. It's just a thing to have fun with now. And that is the predominant image of what people think about when they're dating. Yeah, generally speaking, a guy asks a, a girl out on a date for something right now, not thinking, I'm looking for a future spouse. You look like you might be a suitable future spouse. Can we spend time together? Can we enter into a relationship together to test out whether that could be the case? Is that a distinction you've heard made in some form, whether the word courting has been used or not? And again, if you're putting to a young person the question, not what do you want right now, 
but do you want a long life that's going to be happy and stable? Then that just starts asking very different relationship questions. So even putting aside sex and promiscuity, there are other psychological studies that suggest that the whole pattern of dating a girl, breaking up, dating another girl, breaking up, dating another girl, breaking up, dating another girl, breaking up, is actually not good for future monogamy in terms of what you've done to the emotions and expectations in somebody. Um, and you know, classically, in, in a village of just a small number of people, there'd have come a time in a, a young man's life when he'd have been ready to court and he'd have called upon appropriate girls to court, um, it wouldn't have meant something just casual. Um, and I think something of that we need to try and recover, rather than just the thought that this is a temporary thing we're doing right now, and I know this girl I'm going to ask out on a date, I know I wouldn't dream of wanting to spend my life with her, but I think we could have a, a happy few months together. Um, it's not a pattern of life that's going to help for the long term. Uh, at the risk of stating the obvious, that is very, very different to what your youth in your typical parish are going to be expecting. Um, so to have some of those conversations quite early on, so at the very least you're trying to indicate dating in whatever form should be a, a serious thing, not just a casual thing. Um, with that, to date a girl that shares your values. Uh, so if you're trying to be chaste and she isn't, that's not likely to work out very well. Um, and vice versa, um, if you, for the girl, if the boy's not Catholic. Um, okay, little subsection there, a suitable girlfriend. I say, she needs to share your values, she needs to share your goal, chastity, purity, marriage ultimately, not just the goal of Let's have a good time now and not think about how it will affect our future relationships. So look for a girl who shares your values, not just one who's pretty or fun. And I put in bold, don't waste time in an unsuitable relationship. Time with a dead-end girlfriend, i.e. a girlfriend you know you're not going to spend your life with her, but you're just kind of, you're happy together now, or there isn't another girl on the scene now, so you're just going to stay with this one. So time with a dead-end girlfriend might stop you meeting the girl who could be your future wife, who could be your true Miss Wright. See, don't be like so many people today who spend 10 or 20 years in a dead-end relationship and only then try and find someone else to marry too old to have children. You've all seen that dynamic um, and it's very common out there so that people will sometimes settle into 
something of a long-term relationship. But with someone, they might be quite vocal in saying, oh, but I definitely wouldn't want to marry this person. I definitely wouldn't want to spend my whole life with this person. But as long as they're with that person, they're not going to find the right person. So again, if we're wanting to form youth in this asking the question of behaving now in a way that will dispose them to find someone to spend a life with, not looking for someone who's just a dead-end relationship. You do all know what I'm talking about, sociologically? Um, sadly, when you get to be my age, you will know many of your peers who, who you all have seen do this. Um, and if you wait till 40 before you then finally kind of start thinking, where am I going to find somebody to spend my life with, it's kind of got too late, for many people at least. Not to mention, at 40, you've lost two decades, almost, that you could have had with somebody who's your life partner, um, if that's how you'd approach the whole set of questions to begin with. Okay, then I have a little section on boundaries. Um, so we talk about boundaries in many different contexts uh, in seminary too. Um, in this context, meaning the physical aspects of the relationship. I have heard devout young Catholics say actually they would reject this category at all, that there shouldn't really be a physical relationship pre-marriage. So to have boundaries is not a healthy category. Um, I don't think as a pastor I would want to impose that as the only way forward. Um, have you met uber-Catholics who won't even kiss a girl until they're married? You'll sometimes hear this celebrated in certain circles. It's it's, it's, I don't know, hundreds of years ago might have been normative in many circles, but I would be very wary of saying that's the only way you can be a good Catholic. So as a pastor, we want to commend good behavior or safe behavior, but also not imply it's the only way to be Catholic. Um, so I'm just trying to flag up this thought that the physical boundaries in your relationship, there would be good Catholics who would say, actually, even that is kind of presuming a very physical relationship that kind of in itself is a risky road to be going down. If we're assuming, having said that, that there is some degree of physical contact, um, the question of boundaries is, establishing in your relationship what that physical contact is and isn't going to be. Um, so what do I say there? I say boundaries are a pattern of behavior that you agree with your girlfriend in advance. 
so that you both know when or if you cross those boundaries. I say a young couple need to have a good enough relationship that they can talk about that. A young couple need to talk about what they want from and in the relationship. And a young Catholic couple need to discuss their physical boundaries in advance. Um, so there I've got some bullet points from the two books I've referred to. Maybe we could read those in turn. Daniel first. We need to set... We need to set guidelines in order to avoid temptations. If you're alone at home and kissing your girlfriend on the couch, it's not the best time to start thinking about your boundaries. Know them in advance because your judgment will be anything but objective during a passionate moment. David? Set some firm boundaries regarding intimate behaviors. Often couples who establish these boundaries and goals feel a sense of freedom, peace, and security in their relationship. Tyler? When discussing your boundaries, you may realize that the two of you are wired differently. For example, a woman needs to realize that a man's body works differently than hers. She might be content with snuggling with a guy. The guy's body is working at a much faster pace. Be honest with yourself and with each other. Make your Avoiding places where the two of you have fallen in the past. So if every time your parents go away for the weekend, uh, you come together in a certain context and you know what's kind of going to happen, you, boundaries would seem to include discussing the two of you the morning after when you're going to confession. Um, that wasn't good for us to do that. Um, what else can we do? Um, and obviously, lots of teenagers aren't very mature, um, aren't very good at communicating. But if we are talking to the group about the value of communicating, we're kind of creating an atmosphere and normalcy about this is a thing you should be talking about with your boyfriend or girlfriend. So that if your hand moves down to a certain place, you both know you have or haven't crossed a boundary that you've, you've discussed. Um, page seven, uh, this is a sheet I've handed out uh, for youth. Um, you know I like to put things in charts and tables. Um, this is all very clearly spelt out here. Um, so what have I called this? Guidance on dating boundaries, kissing and petting. Um, and in those two columns, I try to differentiate what's suitable when you're married and what's suitable for you now. And part of my thinking there is trying to indicate to the young person, it's not that this is a thing to never do, Rather, these are a set of things that have a time and place, but not yet. Um, so the first row indicating there's a whole 
section of parts of her that will one day be suitable to be touched and engaged with, but aren't suitable now. Whereas holding hands, hugging, kissing, um, the thought of the next row, the kissing being only for your girlfriend. I don't know how, what different circles you're in. There are lots of circles where just hooking up and kissing at a party is utterly normative with it meaning nothing in particular. Um, and I think that's the thing we need to be kind of challenging our young people on to say, a kiss means something and therefore if you're at a party where it doesn't mean something, that's not going to be a good place for forming your future relationships um, and for, for guarding your own chastity. Am I talking nonsense there, or...? Um. Okay, and then I have a long section on petting. Um, and as I say, that would all be appropriate in marriage. Um, Bonacci and Everett's book um, go through this um, in some detail, but just read some of those points there. Why is petting often wrong? Um, because it awakens a desire that should only be satisfied in sex. It awakens a desire that should only be satisfied when you're married. Bonacci describes the contradiction like this. I love you so much that I'm going to make you want something I'm not going to give you. Petting usually involves turning on a desire you won't satisfy. Private parts and foreplay are designed to awaken desire for sex, which means they should only be involved when you're in a relationship where you can intend sex. Um, so foreplay is utterly appropriate in a married relationship where sex is kind of the natural outcome. If you're in a relationship where sex is not an appropriate outcome, but you're engaging in the behavior that's going to lead you towards that, that would take some kind of violent shutting down of the whole behavior, it's just not a helpful trajectory to be on. Next bullet point I note, the brain shuts down and stops thinking when you get sexually excited. So you need an advance to think how far you want to go. And I say this is why date rape, among other things, is so common. That a guy loses the ability to think clearly the more his levels, hormones and everything kick in. He's not going to make good judgments. And this is why a young guy and a young girl thinking all this through in advance is going to help him realize when he's no longer thinking clearly, as well as thinking not to get into that situation to begin with. 
So next say, think of your future wife now and reserve acts for her that belong to her. Uh, and using another analogy from those books, why rev up an engine when you're not going to drive the car? And then getting more specific, the question about arousal itself, um, getting excited, an erection, um, is a sign that you've revved up the engine and that it's time to back down. That would be different books of guidance that you'd read. I think that would usually be taken as a criteria to how do I know we're, we're going too far, that we need to step back and cool down. That's a pretty clear indication. And I know that girls don't have the same issue or problem, um, and so girls often don't understand boys. Um, so this is written primarily for a page for boys. Sorry. Pontifical College to Um Where were we? Um, okay, the last bit on that page there, French kissing. Um, so this would probably be the bit of this page that would be most disputed. Um, so there'd be many writers, I think both of these, that would say French kissing just you shouldn't do at all uh, if, you're not, if you're not married um, because it almost always goes with arousal and being hard therefore to back down. Um, I think as a moral theologian, I'd probably say it would be an example of something that isn't an intrinsically evil act. So it'd kind of be the circumstantial consequences that would make it problematic rather than French kissing per se. Um, but to use that image, revving up the engine when you're not intending to drive isn't good for the engine. Um, and once you've been revving up the engine, and your brain's not thinking properly, you're gonna think, let's go for a drive. Um, uh, comments on this page? You see there's a risk, the more specific you give, getting guidance you give to people, the more it's not definitively Catholic what you're spelling out. So our tone of voice as pastors and whatever, we need to be clear what we're saying, kind of this is the Catholic thing, and this is good practical advice many Catholics say about how to make sure you do that. So being chaste, not having sex with your boyfriend or girlfriend, um, those are kind of the bottom lines. Behavior that's gonna enable you to keep that, behavior that's gonna be healthy for you now, um, those are more prudential judgments. But we can still say, there are lots of sensible Catholics who say these are good prudential judgments, but these might not be about sin per se. But sin isn't the only question. And then there's, there's a phrase I haven't used on either of those pages, the, an occasion of sin. 
So putting yourself in an occasion of sin, particularly an occasion of sin where you know in that situation we've fallen before, this is a thing to be self-aware of, um, honest with yourself about. Um, practical thoughts on this page? It's a good question, isn't it? Hmm? <laughs> well, I'm I'm kind of putting that back to you because there there isn't a clear-cut answer. Um, a teenager who is already watching pornography sometimes is going to be learning nothing inappropriate being, by being given this. Um, a child who's had a much more sheltered environment, you might be suggesting bad things by giving that to them too young. That's why in an ideal world, you'd want to have some knowledge of where the parents stand on some of these questions. Um, I think at least one of the times when I discussed this with my youth group, I told all the parents in advance that we would be discussing that. I think I also told the teens as well. Um, and I guess at that stage I had a good enough relationship that they didn't then not turn up. Um, would you have an answer yourself? The bigger and bigger the group is, the harder it's going to be to make a judgment call well there. So that if you wait too long, they've already embedded themselves in patterns of behavior that you're kind of telling them to change what they're doing, which is a much more difficult narrative. If they haven't even started the whole dating thing, and you're saying, when you're looking at those questions, what would be a healthy way to do so? you're dealing with people whose minds are much more open. Um, so the dating question is a different question from the boundaries question, at what age you might flag that up. Um, and again, if you're having a number of kind of five minutes comments, rather than sitting them down for a three hour session, um, done something like um, talking to parents about uh, how they should form their children in this way? No, is the honest answer. Uh, or n certainly not in a systematic way. So the two parishes I had uh, were both small enough parishes where I knew the parents. And so I would have had numerous informal conversations to be pretty sure where they were all coming from. So to know which parents, in a sense, I'd be pushing a boundary doing this, which other parents would kind of be feeling, um, you know, you've been here two years and you haven't said anything about um, these things with our children yet. Um, so um, 
and then at least one of the families I worked with, um, I think I was first introduced to one of these books by a teenage girl in the parish. Um, so, you know, if you've, if you've got one person in the group who's kind of saying in front of others, could you talk about this to us, Father? Uh, it just opens the doorway for everything else um, much more easily. I suppose one, one route would be to give a book like this to the parents. Um, and you'd then get some sense of, of the reaction. Um, yeah, actually I was just wondering what it, so there's a, a randomly here, uh, why do NFP couples have such low divorce rates? Um, now you can imagine there'd be a large number of parents and parishes that would um, balk at such a question being listed there. But most of the things in here, I think most parents would just be really grateful to have somebody having that conversation with their children. But to have a dynamic with them such that they feel you're doing this in some sense with them, not apart from them. Is there like a good 10, 15 minute video that explain some of this because a lot of people who won't read a book will watch a 15-minute video. Yeah. Because I, I think there's a lot of people who would say thank you for the book and it would go on the shelf. Sure. And on one level there's a part of me that's kind of okay with that because they've at least got the idea there is some wisdom out there because they've got the book even if they're only going to look it up on YouTube. Jason Everett has an awful lot on the internet including video clips. Um, whether he's got the equivalent of, of a boundaries page in a video clip, I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised if he does. Um, yeah, I'll try and see if I can yeah, get that for next year. Conversely, if you find it. Uh, um, there have been many talks he's done that must be recorded and be out there. Um, okay, the next page. So at the top it's titled Reforming the Sex Drive, some science-based observations and practical advice. So this is summarizing, at least in part, this book, uh, Every Young Man's Battle, um, and using some of the images it has within it. Um, so if I start by just reading through that page. So the sex drive is not fixed in its amount, that we can increase it, and then it becomes difficult to control. But every healthy man has a sex drive, but in its natural state, so to speak, it's relatively easy to control. So just to pause there, this is the thing they cite bits of research on. Um, there is a level of sexual desire in a guy that is not static. It rises, it falls. Um, with women that is linked with their monthly cycle, 
Men have a cycle as well that isn't monthly, but shifts. And part of what changes it is our behavior. So the more impure we are, the more that drive increases and it becomes more difficult to be pure. Whereas conversely, the more we are pure, that drive can kind of fall to a natural state where it needs managing, but it is workable to control. So spelling that out in what I've called a vicious circle and a virtuous circle. So first the vicious circle. When we do certain things, the body gets a chemical high in response to sexual pleasure. Our sex drive increases, and then we struggle to control it. So viewing a sexual image doesn't just affect us at that moment. It increases our drive for future days or even weeks, depending you know, how graphic the image is. Um, thinking, similarly, thinking a sexual thought, entertaining a daydream, particularly if it's somehow particularly vivid, increases our drive, not just at that moment, but for future days or weeks. And masturbation and its sexual pleasure likewise increases our drive for future days or weeks. All of this creates a vicious circle so that it becomes increasingly difficult to be pure because we've caused our sex drive to increase. And in a phrase that would kind of sum up virtue analysis, our current impurity is the accumulation of many individual past impure acts. So we are the people we have made ourselves to be. My inclination to vice in general and particular vices is the accumulation of my past activity. What science can now see with sexual desire is how these various sexual actions hormonally, chemically increase this desire within me. So we create a vicious circle by giving into those. Conversely, a virtuous circle. So the language they use in this book is starving. So every time we starve our sexual appetite, so the, we use the word appetite, then kind of the corresponding terminology starve makes sense, yeah? Every time we starve our sexual appetite, our sex drive decreases, eventually down to its natural state. So spelling that out in the same three categories. Starving the eyes. Every time we refrain from looking impurely, our sexual fantasies lack something to think about and our sex drive decreases. So if you think your own experience, you go to the movie theater and you've not seen anything impure for a long time, you see one scene in the movie theater that remains in your thoughts for quite a while. Um, starving the mind. Similarly, every time we refrain one thought, our drive decreases slightly and it becomes easier in the future. And starving ourselves of the pleasure. Every time a man who is addicted to masturbation refrains himself, his sex drive decreases slightly, and this then becomes easier 
the next time he's restraining. So each single victory in the battle makes future victories much easier to achieve. Now the difficulty is the next thing, that this is progressive. So, and here I'm quoting their statistics, but a man in serious habitual sin will be able to drop his sex drive to an easily controllable state in six weeks. Even in one week, he will sense a difference. But he will likely hit a wall at three weeks, like any addiction. But if he pushes through and perseveres, it will then get much easier. Now, if you're talking to a 15-year-old about six weeks, that's like an eternity. Yeah. Um, but we do need to be honest and say it will become easier, even in a week. Um, but then this three-week kind of wall, the same way somebody kind of going cold turkey off cocaine, they supposedly hit a wall uh, where kind of the drive, the impulse, the, it all becomes really difficult. And somehow you've got to just push through that wall to know it will get better. So on the internet, there are support groups for pornography addiction. Um, you'd have to be very wary with an underage child to be referring them to something like that. Um, but support is one of the ways of, of helping um, through that. So when we've talked about virtue in general, repetition is what enables us to grow in a virtue. Repetition is something bad, it grows the vice and grows the desire. Repetition of various forms of refraining causes that desire to just diminish to a more manageable level. Have you heard any of this before? The Augustine way, did it go through this point? You think so, okay. Okay, so there are then a series of five points where I am in practice summarizing from that book. Um, they use the phrase bouncing the eyes. So when you see a scantily clad lady or whatever, to have a habit of not doing a double take, but to try and train your eyes to bounce elsewhere, to know there's something there and to look to something else. Um, with thoughts, um, you've all heard the phrase mortifying thoughts? Not So in the spiritual tradition, spiritual writers talk about this a lot with all kinds of thoughts, not just with the chastity. Um, so to mortify something is to put something to death. And with our thoughts, we need to know our patterns of behavior to know that there are certain chains of thinking that need to just be killed. 
that if I continue in that chain of thinking, it will just drag me down and make me depressed. Or if I continue that chain of thoughts, it will make me be more judgmental and angry and bitter. That there's a, a line of thinking I see myself doing, I just know I somehow need to put this to death. So the process of doing that is what the saints call mortifying the thoughts. And that would go with angry thoughts, with judgmental thoughts, with uncharitable thoughts, with unchaste thoughts. How do you mortify? Well, on one level, saying no. But on another level, putting your thoughts to something else. Because it's not possible to think nothing. Uh, you have to have a kind of ready reservoir of alternate things you can think about which might be what you're going to do on your day off. It might be um, that last movie you thought, saw, might be the novel you're reading at the moment. Um, this is, among other things, why it's important to always have something good but entertaining in your life that you can happily think of. Um, Point four, avoiding loneliness, um, at the risk of stating the obvious. Um, loneliness is a, a natural occasion of the, in this regard. So a young guy, you know, that's in confession, that's a question I would frequently ask a young man, um, are you lonely? Um, and to just, with the, to offer sympathy, not just condemnation. That what's part of your solution out of this situation, um, spending time with people, getting outdoors, um, being in your room alone is not healthy on all kinds of levels. Okay, page, the, the, what is that on your list? Page nine then, top of page nine. So um, why is purity worth the fight? And I give three reasons. Uh, and just to run through these in case you've not articulated these or heard them put this way. First, to enjoy sex successfully when you're married. So to tell a young man or a young girl, why is it worth being pure now? in order to have a happy sex life when you're married. And note the common phenomenon. A married man watches porn and masturbates downstairs while his wife is waiting for him upstairs. And when he goes upstairs, he has nothing left to give her. And I've used that image in multiple talks I've given. Um, and I've had, well, in confession, but, you know, married men describe that is exactly what happens um, and it's tragic on all kinds of levels um, so he then doesn't have real sex because he's been watching sex uh, and abusing himself apart from his wife um, and so in section point e there um, i say um, quoting a, a survey there about church ladies having the best sex. 
Um, the media tell us that the most exciting sex is outside marriage, but several major studies show that church ladies and the men who sleep with them are among the most sexually satisfied people on the face of the earth. Um, and while obviously there's something that is deliberately humorous in how they've chosen to phrase all that, um, it's a pretty powerful counter argument to the thought that, well, the church is telling these teenagers to not do it because we've got a thing against sex. No, it's just we want the happy sex to be in its proper place. In a, in a dismissive tone, I would imagine. Um, I guess ladies who go to church, probably. Um, uh, okay, sk skipping down then, because we're about to run out of time. Um, the section, that, so the third bullet point section there, why is it worth being pure? To be free to think and leave, live clearly and freely now. So say, a boy who is wandering around thinking about sex all the time is not free to enjoy the rest of life around him. He's living in fantasy, not reality. He's missing out on what reality can give him. He's living alone in his mind. And so this is tragic and lonely. And so we call people wankers as an insult for a reason. It's a sad, pathetic, lonely lifestyle. Whereas a boy who has mastered his thoughts and attractions to pleasure, he has thoughts free to think about people around him, real people that he could have a friendship with, has thoughts able to enter into real life and enjoy real life. As I say, reality is worth enjoying. So for the young person now, it's worth it, now. It's also for his future married life. Um, worth it now to make that married life better. Okay, I've ranged around a number of topics this morning. I've tried to give you some pointers for how pastorally um, there are resources out there, there are strategies to use in the parish. This is in many ways the pastoral conclusion of this whole course. Um, if everything we've been saying matters, then it matters that we enable people to know how to live it. And if we aren't doing that with young people, um, we're not going to start them on a trajectory that's going to help them for their future.